Okay. Uh, for those of you who are new, I'm Pastor David. Um, Pastor, oh yeah, kids, kids can go, and they are going because they don't wait for me anymore. So, <laughs> be waiting all day. Uh, Pastor David, Pastor Brent, Pastor Chatter, both in Lapine this week. Once in a while, they let me play in the sandbox alone, and so um, I'm, I'm get to be here with you guys today. Um, I want to first and foremost say that we feel the love um, as pastors from you guys. Um, a lot of you gave gifts, a lot of you gave cards. A lot of you wrote us personal messages last month um, that we knew were personal. They weren't generic. They actually um, spoke deeply. And, um, and, and we just, um, it's a complete joy and honor um, to get to serve you guys and um, to get to do this thing called life alongside you and, and growing in the, the, the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ uh, together. Um, we really feel privileged, and, and I know that we've been through some hard times, especially in the last couple of years, because um, that's what families do. They go through hard times, and, and sometimes they, they rub up against each other, um, and they wrestle each other. But at the end of the day, uh, we, we know where we stand with each other, and, that, and that's in the risen Savior, who's all about love, unity, peace, restoration. And, um, and I feel like we have that here, and I've felt it from you guys. And so I just want to say thank you, and even for the other guys, thank you for thinking of us the way that you have. It, um, it made our day. It made our month. So, <laughs> so thank you. Um, let's go First Thessalonians chapter 1. We started the book of First Thessalonians last week. Pastor Chad uh, started into it. Um, I think he got like halfway into verse 5. And so I'm going to pull out halfway into verse 5. Actually, I think we're going to probably run through 5 again. But um, let's, just, uh, let's just go ahead and read the whole chapter again. Uh, actually, starting in verse 2, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Um, How many of you have flown recently? I'm sorry. It's such a horrible experience now. You know what I mean? Like all the way around, front to back, there's nothing at all pleasant about flying anymore. But um, I'm sure at one point or another, almost all of you have been on a plane and on a flight. And you probably know that there are certain necessaries um, that the flight attendant has to communicate before that plane leaves the ground. Right. Um, 
They talk about oxygen masks. They even demonstrate these things. They'll usually take one. They'll show you how to put it on, right? They'll talk about flotation devices and how to deal with those and where those are stored, emergency doors, exits, who's sitting there, how that goes down. They want to make sure that you know all that. And if you think about it, what they have to say is extremely important if something goes down. I mean, literally, what they have to say is, is pretty important. It's even life-saving, right? But does anybody care? Does anybody pay attention? I mean, I'm sure there's a few people that are a little tripped out, you know what I mean, that hate flying, and they're, they're, paying att- they're maybe even taking notes. They're, like, paying attention. All- Most of us, we're like, like, let's just get the, let's get the plane on the, you know, going. You know what I mean? Let's get this flight on the way. It becomes common sometimes, and maybe we don't pay as much attention to it because it's said at the beginning of each flight that can become old, um, both to the attendant as well as to the passenger. So the attendant can start to play with it. If you like YouTube, you've maybe seen some of these where you've got passengers that are, that are uh, videoing the attendant as they've found new and clever ways to walk you through these life-saving things. Some of them will dance. Some of them will sing. Some of them will do just this ridiculous, like, uh, dramatization of, of, you know, of it to where it, it even becomes sillier, almost, right? Um, when something gets old, we tend to, use, to lose our passion for it. We tend to lose our passion for it. We tend to not care as much. Um, our believability that people can actually need to hear it can actually fade, right? Um, That it could actually save or change a life may start to fade. And I believe that you and I, the church, can get this way with our message, our old gospel message that's a couple thousand years old. How... um, The question, I think, is how are we communicating it? Are we communicating it at all? And I love this opening chapter of Thessalonians because it reminds me of the importance of the gospel and the effects of the gospel. It reminds us how the gospel works. And in a nutshell, basically what we see here is that there's a flow to the gospel. There's a flow to the gospel, and it goes like this. The gospel comes to us. The gospel works in us, and then the gospel comes out of us. That's it. Very simple, very profound, though, if you think about it. The gospel comes to us, it works in us, and then it comes out of us. And we're going we're gonna to see like a perfect snapshot of this in these um, last five verses of the first chapter here. And as Paul brought out, or uh, as Paul, as Chad brought out last week, Paul here is speaking to a new church. Do you realize that when this letter, this book that we're in right now was written to this church, it was only a year after its conception. It was only a year after the gospel had hit their ears and they came alive. Um, and so keep that in mind as you're looking at what's going on here. Um, because what, what happened is Paul was on a missionary journey. He had plans to go to Asia. If you remember this, I think it's found somewhere around Acts 16. He has plans to go to Asia. And uh, the Holy Spirit says, no, nah, you can't go. 
And I don't know how that went down. I don't know what it looked like. I wish we knew, like, exactly how that went down. But the Spirit of God wouldn't let him. Like, nah, you're not going. So he heads back to the, the, the region of Macedonia, and he stops in um, to Thessalonica uh, for three weeks. We know that he was there in the synagogues for three Sabbath days. So three, he was in this, in this place, and everything that we're going to see in this church, in these people, is, is coming out of his three-week stay with the gospel, planting this church, and this is what they look like a year later. It's pretty, actually, it's, it's super amazing. And, and what's cool is that this infant church, one of the things I think we see right off the bat in chapter 1, is that um, they were vibrant. They were active. Um, they were exciting. There was, there was, the, they, they had not stagnated in any way. They were firing off this church. They were on the gospel. And um, I, do, I do believe, and some of you who have been a part of this, there's something special about a church plant. There's something really neat about being a part of something when it starts or something in the beginning. And I thought about this. What, what makes church plants so unique? What creates that, um, that uniqueness to a church plant? Um, and I often think back to the Doors infancy. Ten years ago, when we first started in a living room with a handful of people, um, and, and, I, and I try to consider like what made it so vibrant and what made it so active um, and what made it so exciting, and I, and I think it's, it's kind of a collection of things. Uh, I think a lot of it's due to the unknown of it all, and I know that most of you don't like unknowns. Uh, we like knowns, but I think that as people of God, as children of God, uh, as gospel carriers, we are, we are built to actually thrive in the unknown. And the reason is because we're more dependent here than we are here uh, when things are unknown, right? Um, and so I, I think that's, that's part of it. Uh, I think part of it's the unpredictability of it all. When you're part of a church plant, you know that anything can happen. There is no script. You know what I mean? So, so, so the possibility of what God might do is one of these things that propels you forward in faith and excitement. And activity. Um, there's a freshness about a church plant uh, that is refreshing, right? There, there's no baggage. There's no history. Um, there, there's like no there's like no checks in in the failure column yet. <laughs> like they're all in the win column, right? And so you've got you've got this this fresh. It, it's kind of invigorating, invigorating because of that, you know. Um, and in that. People seem to be more apt to commit to and to rally behind a common vision rather than to shoot holes in it. They're unified. The people involved in a new plant seem more willing to sacrifice than they are to be served. And with all these components firing, there is life and there is excitement and there is movement and it is good. And then over time, that life excitement forward momentum seems to wane. It seems to dull and the movement slows down and becomes common. There's an old saying um, that new fresh works seem to go from man to movement to monument. Have you ever heard that? I think it's called an axiom. It goes from man to movement to monument, which is exactly like it sounds. Something starts within a man. There's something that, that happens within a guy where he sees something that needs to be done. He sees something that he needs to walk in and go out and do. And so he does. And the people then that are sitting around watching what's going on inside of this guy are like, I need to be a part of that. And so they jump on. And this thing becomes a movement. 
But then over time, a lot of movements will lose that spark. They'll lose that energy. They'll lose that passion. And they will become a monument. They will become a memory where all you have is a statue to walk up to and look at to remember something that happened. And I pray to God that what he started here in this little place in Three Rivers, the door never, ever becomes a monument. Ever. I never want to drive around this loop and go by this building and look over at this building and say the gospel used to come out of there. Ever. And I hope you don't either. I hope you don't either. The gospel by nature is a movement. The only thing that can ruin it is us. And so we need to be centered, fixed, amazed by continually the gospel, the power of the gospel and the person of Christ for us. And I know you guys are like, yeah, dude, like we hear this every week. You're going to hear it again. You're going to keep hearing it every week. This is part of the reason why you hear it every week is so that this place does not become a monument, that this place is a movement, that it is a force for Jesus Christ that cannot be resisted in this community with your neighbors and with your coworkers and with your families, with the other kids that your kids go to school with, with your enemies, that they cannot resist the power of Christ that comes out of here because of the movement that Christ ignites in his people. And so um, the gospel is never something that we're going to graduate from here if you're hoping for that. Like, like I, I know we're not very scholarly sometimes, or it doesn't seem scholarly that we camp on the gospel and that that's everything to us, but, but I'll tell you what, like, it, it's, it is everything to us. Without it, we have nothing. I don't know what we're doing here. It, it's all about the person and work of Christ. That's not just uh, what, what, what saves us. It's what finalizes us in glory, too. It brings us all the way through. It's the beginning. It's the end of our faith, and it's everything in between. That Jesus loves us is deep, and it is powerful. It is not shallow. I've said this before, that Jesus loves us is the deep end of the theological swimming pool. It's not shallow. It makes no sense that a holy, infinite, eternal, perfect God would pay any attention to you and I. But he has. He has. And you and I know that. And so we come and we hear and we wash in this. But then we go out and we proclaim so that others may be washed, so that others may know what we know. And that's the nature of the gospel in a movement, in a movement. And I'm just dumb, whatever. Um, I guess the question is, how do we prevent? How do we prevent becoming a monument? Um, and no matter how many ways you cut it, just like I just said, it, it comes back to making the gospel our gospel. It's our gospel. So we don't sit here and we think, oh, this is the church's gospel or that person sitting over there, that's their gospel. No, it's, it becomes our gospel. It's something that we own. It's something that we buy into. It's something that we appropriate to our lives by the grace of God. We know that, that it is everything to us. And that changes things. So we continue to grow in it, depend on it, be amazed by it. Um, 
The gospel works, is my point, if you haven't got that by now. The gospel works, and what I want to, uh, this is a room full of proof. Like, if you remove the gospel, um, like, what this is right now makes no sense. The gospel works, and um, in this text, we're going get, to get a clear picture of how. So let's go ahead and start. We're going to go verse 5, okay? So we have the gospel uh, that comes to us. The gospel that saves comes to us. Uh, First in word, uh, Chad hit on this last week. I'm just going to touch on it slightly again. The gospel is spoken, it is proclaimed, it is heard. Um, as, as Chad touched on, uh, the gospel absolutely, absolutely comes by way of word, just as Paul says in Romans, right? For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, which means that it's proclaimed, it's declared, um, it's spoken. The Apostle Paul also says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. In other words, the spoken gospel word is not just an empty word. It's not an empty word. It's not just a set of words. It's not just a set of audible words. Right? It's not empty. It's not just our words that we come up with and that we produce so that something might happen in somebody. Right? And thank God for that. Because if like the gospel depended on you and I, like no one would be saved. Nobody would be saved. I'm fully convinced of that. Uh, praise God that our gospel words are not alone. They're not alone. But that there's something else attached to it, which is power. Power. And, of course, the Holy Spirit, right? Verse 5. So, in other words, the gospel word, when it saves, is not alone. It has company. The word for power is, in the Greek, dunamis, right? It's where we get our English word, dynamite. Think TNT. Think an explosion happening. Right. So 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 the gospel word, when it comes in power, is something that leaves a mark for those who are being saved. It disrupts things. That's what it does. It disrupts and rearranges things. Right. Uh, So it's like something goes off in us, courtesy of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then grants to us conviction, like it says there, so that we can feel and we can know and we can see and believe that we're on the wrong side of God. Okay? We need the power of the gospel word with the Holy Spirit to convict us, to allow us to know that we're on the wrong side of God. Why do we need to know that? We need to know that so that we can then beg to be on the right side of God. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to have my sins forgiven because I am a sinner? Right? The explosion rearranges these things inside of us. See, see, the act of salvation is not purely an act of man or an act of intellect or an act of reason or an act of will. It's not primarily an act that comes about due to how good we can witness, how good we can argue, or how good we can answer questions. Salvation is a supernatural act requiring the words of life coupled with the spirit of life. That equals power. I hope you guys understand this because if you do, it's going to change how you witness. It's going to change how often you witness. It's going to change the confidence that you have. 
Instead of being frightened every time you're deliberating within yourself, should I open my mouth for Jesus right now? I don't want to feel stupid. I can't answer all the questions that uh, you know they might have for me. You know all those things that keep us from stepping in. This erases all of them because it's God that does all the heavy lifting, right? It doesn't depend on our ability and how many questions we can answer. It's Him because the act of somebody being saved through the the gospel word is supernatural. In John chapter 3, the gospel, we have this conversation, right? We have it between Jesus and Nicodemus go down in some back alley so that Nicodemus wouldn't be seen by his buddies with this dude, right? And they're having this conversation about how one is born again because Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot see. You cannot even see the kingdom of God. You cannot comprehend it. You cannot want it. You cannot visit it. Like nothing, nothing. And so he, he talks about being born again, and Nicodemus is trying to figure this out. And he's like, okay, yeah, give me something to do. Like, tell me what I need to do, and I will do it. And so then he, he, he spits out this thing about being born again, and, and, and Nicodemus is like, so I need, to, I need to crawl back into my mom's womb and then crawl back out, right? Which is ridiculous. Like, like that, that's how ridiculous it is for a man to be able to save himself and be born again. What's the point? The point is the spirit, like the wind, blows where it will, comes upon who it will, depend, uh, descends on who he will, right? Fills and enters who he will. And then pulls the grenade and rearranges the hearts of who he will. It's a supernatural act that is fully dependent on God. Right? It's a supernatural act. I, I mean, I think, we, I think a lot of us know it. I think a lot of us are sitting here nodding our heads right now going, I know it is for me. Like, I remember, my, I, I remember who I was pre-Jesus. It makes no sense that this is me. It makes no sense that I think the way that I think, that I live the way that I live, that I do the things that I do, that I love the things that I love compared to what it used to be. It's completely, it makes no sense. That's because it's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a supernatural act, occurrence that has happened to us, right? Courtesy of the Holy Spirit, right? And thus you and I get to sit here today, not as sinners, but as saints because of him, because of his washing and rebirth, not yours. And um, it's a beautiful thing. Right, and so we we have this idea that it's it, it, salvation is a supernatural act, even though God sees fit to use us, right, like natural means, instruments, to bring about to speak life into those who are being saved. Paul's saying to these guys, if you look at it, um, I think the backside of five. He's basically saying, we're, we're, we're actually all of verse 5, we're certain that God did a work in you with our gospel. We are certain of it because of how it's fully, fully affected you, because of how it's fully affected your lives. We see the effects of the explosion that went off inside of you. Otherwise, you guys would not have responded the way that you have, is basically what he's saying. In other words, your, your conversion is legit. Your conversion is legit. 
he's telling them. So the first thing we see about how the gospel works is that it's, it's supernatural. It comes to us supernaturally and works inside us through the gospel word. Huh? Um, number two, gospel conduct authenticates gospel word. Gospel conduct. So, so how well I live, praise God again, does not determine whether someone's saved or not. Okay, I can't, I can't, I can't meet that bar. But, but how we live, people that have been changed by the gospel, how we walk in what we proclaim authenticates what we proclaim. Do you see that there? The end of verse five and six. We can actually uh, read that. You know what kind of men we proved. We proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word with much affliction and the joy of the Holy Spirit. We, we, we see there that the, the gospel came to the Thessalonians not only by the apostles' words, but also by the apostles' lives. Also by their lives, their conduct, their demonstration of what it was they were saying. So, so the gospel is not just proclaimed in word, right? But it's also proclaimed in life. The gospel we preach is authenticated by our lives, by how we live. And again, not, not that we're perfect in any way, but that, we, uh, what, that, that what we do and how we do it reflects the Jesus that we follow. Right? So the, the apostles didn't come to the Thessalonians, in other words, for personal gain or to save their own hides. There wasn't just something in it for them. It wasn't a selfish act. Why they came, right? They didn't, they didn't come uh, to, to the Thessalonians because they had to, right? Um, they didn't come complaining about how bad the Christians are mistreated and how wicked the rest of the world is and, you know, us versus them. They, they, they didn't come in a shady way. They didn't come uh, fraudulently or devoid of lives that lined up with what they said. Their lives lined up with the good news that they brought. And this is going to be spoken to in more detail in chapter 2. Okay? He's actually really going to go into how they brought the gospel uh, to them in chapter 2. The point is this. Their message and their lives agreed. Their message and their lives agreed. And this is the challenge, isn't it? This is, this is the challenge, that, that our lives and our actions should line up or with or authenticate the word that we proclaim because it's easy for us to sit around and bag on statements like preach the gospel and all you do and when necessary use words, which is an erroneous statement. Just as we've seen, the gospel is proclaimed, it is spoken, it is through word, but at the same time, there's really nothing less convincing about the gospel message we declare than when it comes from a person whose life reflects nothing, nothing of which it is they proclaim. Nothing in attitude or conduct with no gospel effects. This is partially why I think the church's message has become so ignored and so unbelievable. It's because we're so loud and we're so vocal about the things that we hate and the things that we disagree with and the people we disagree with in our pride and our anger while we're supposedly promoting a man whose life and message came to save those he disagreed with. You know what I'm saying? Doesn't look right, does it? We love to point out all the ways people are wrong with no gospel accompanying any of what we're doing or how we're doing it. And you know what that is? That's a contrary testimony. Paul says, we didn't do that with you. 
We went to great lengths for you. Under full threat of doing what we did. That's how much this gospel means and matters. That's how much you need it, and that's how much we believe in it. You heard our words, you saw our lives, and they agreed. That's basically what he's saying. Our treatment, conduct, and actions all lined up with our proclamation, basically. The testimony of Paul's lips lined up with the testimony of his life. So this is authentication, and it was noticeable, and it was apparently compelling, like it got, it got some people's attention. And so this isn't an either-or, word or life, with the gospel, it's a, it's a yes and yes. Yes and yes. Right? If you just witness with your lips and not with your life, that's hypocrisy. Okay? And it's highly suspect. If you just witness with your life and not your lips, that's cruelty. You know what I'm saying? That's like, that's like someone who's, who's found a medicine that's cured them and then hides it and tells nobody about it. That's cruelty. And, and, so, and so we walk uh, in spirit and we walk in truth, and that embodies what we proclaim as well as what we live. Those things, agree, they agree, and we see that going on here with, with these guys. There's a saying, and, and this saying has problems too, um, but I've come to find the value in it because of what it is saying. <laughs> Um, and that is the only Bible that most people will ever read is you. The only Bible that most people... Now, now this, is, this is really bad news um, on one hand, right? Like, we're all like, no, this, no, right? Really bad news. But, but, on, but on, in another way, it's kind of, it's kind of exciting. Um, when you know that you've been saved by the grace of God, when you know that you're going to fall short, um, it, it's kind of exciting to think, you know what, it's probably true that most of these people are never going to go home at night and go, I'm bored, I think I'll pick up a Bible, right? Most people on earth aren't going to do that. If they know you're a Christian, they are watching you. They are watching you. And so that's where there's some truth to this. So even the way that we fall short and we trespass on others and we sin and then we own it and we repent of it, is also a way that they're, they're reading our Bibles, right? We should be the most humble people that walk this earth. We should be the people best at making amends and apologizing and mending and reconciling better than anybody else. We should be displaying that stuff. That stuff displays the gospel. It displays and reveals something that is clear in our Bibles for life and for the child of God. And it's a pretty beautiful thing when you see it done regularly and sincerely. So, um, yeah, what we proclaim and, and, and how we live it um, should line up. Um, next, we see six through nine. Some of you are like, we're not going to finish till five tonight. Um, I'm going to read. I'm just going to like read six through nine and then uh, make, we'll make a couple, bring a couple points out of that. Uh, which says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in those places, I can't say the last one well, uh, but your faith in God has, has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and, and say that something has happened to these guys. Right? 
Something has happened to these guys. I mean, this letter, again, was written one year later after the reception of the gospel, and the word about them have spread far and wide. The word has already spread concerning their lives, concerning their words, concerning their allegiance. Something radical has happened. Paul says it's gone forth everywhere. We don't even need to tell uh, tall tales about what went down in Thessalonica with you guys when we went. Like, the word's out. Like, everybody knows. We don't have to hear about it from you. The, The conversion that they had is not able to be ignored. It's not able to be ignored. These guys are on fire, and and it's for real. It's for real. Here's the deal. The gospel that came to them is now unable to stay in them. It has to come out. It has to have a place to go. Do you guys understand that? That which we have and that which we love, that which we've been saved by, it has to come out. That's how God's designed it. It it can't stay. It can't get buried into the ground, right, and covered up and hidden. We can't act like it's nothing, like it's common, like it's no big deal. If you do, something's wrong. It has to come out. And it's coming out of these guys. It's coming out in their words and in their lives. So the the, the first thing we see the gospel does after it comes in, does a work in us, is it finds a way out of us. It finds a way out. We don't hide it. We don't hoard it. We don't bury it. We don't forget about it. We don't act like, we don't pass it off like a fly just landed on us and then go about our business like it goes off like a bomb. It goes off with, with power. And when it does, we go from gospel recipients to gospel carriers. Right? Gospel livers. That's not even a word, is it? Livers. That's not proper English. It affects everything. So one of the ways the gospel comes out of us is in, we see it clearly here, repentance. Repentance. I know that's the R word for some of you. Um, I know some of you don't like that word. There's times I don't like that word. Uh, It's actually a beautiful word. Uh, It's a rad thing that we can have that in our vocabulary and as an option in our lives. That God grants us repentance is one of the best things um, that we could possibly have. It's super cool. And so one of the ways that the gospel comes out of us is in repentance. Um, I've already kind of spoken to this, but uh, we'll speak to it a little more because we see it here in them. Uh, That means changed lives. There's, there's changed lives. There's turning from old sinful games to his game. <laughs> like there's a, there's a tur- and, and, and that's what this means. Paul references this back in verse 5. He says the gospel came to them uh, in power of the Holy Spirit and full conviction. This is what he's talking about. So that went into them, worked inside of them, and now this is what's coming out as a result of full conviction of the gospel going on inside of them is this, this repentance that's visible, that's noticeable, that's seen um, by everybody else. Um, and, and repentance just, mean, it, it, it just means to turn. That's it. Like we're just going to keep it. It means to turn. You were going this way, which I'm just going to go ahead and interpret that for you all, away from God. Okay? This is all of us. We had this in common. Whatever it looked like, however bad it was or not bad you thought it was, like we were all going in a direction opposite of God. We were Jonah, just going away from him. Okay? And to repent means that you turn and you go toward him. 
Okay? That's what repentance is. Don't do a 360. Don't do a 360. Do a 180. 360 sounds cooler, looks cooler. It's not cooler. It's not cooler. 180. So, so it's that we turn. It's that instead of running from him, we now run towards him. We now are, we find ourselves now running from the things we used to be running to on our way towards him. That's, that's what it is. And that's what repentance is. It's, it doesn't mean to clean yourself up. Don't get this wrong. I don't know how many people misunderstand this. I don't know how many churches have actually mispreached this. You cannot do better, try harder to get yourself in a place where God will receive you. If God has already received you, you will repent. This is something that comes out of that. Okay? You cannot clean yourself up. There's nothing you can do to make yourself good enough so that God will look down and notice you one day and be like, oh, I kind of like what that person's doing. I think I'll, get, I'll send him an invitation. He doesn't work that way. Even the best works that we have are uglier than you and I can ever imagine according to the Bible. They're despicable. They're disgusting. Our best works. So we need something, again, altogether different than what we're able to produce and provide for ourselves. This is where the righteousness of Christ comes in. Right? Come to Jesus and he cleans you up. It's not the other way around. You don't clean yourself up in order to come to Jesus. Jesus gets a hold of you. He'll clean you up. He is extremely faithful and extremely capable and extremely determined to conform you to the image of himself. And he will do it. Some of you are sitting here today going like, doesn't feel like it, man. Like I got this thing I've been wrestling with for five years in my life. It's going, or I blew it this morning with my wife and my kids and that. Like some of you don't feel that, but uh, you need to understand that, 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 that if your only hope is in Christ for righteousness and sanctification and glorification, He'll perform it. He sees you. He knows you. He cares for you. He loves you, and he's going to work. He's going to work it out in you, right? He's faithful to do that. But repentance is one of those things where we literally turn from the things we used to love, serve, worship, to the only one who's worthy of loving our service and worship, right? I said that wrong, but you get it. He says there how you turn from God to idols to serve the living and true God. This is a, a visible public, public repentance. This is a public um, evidence of a gospel that's come in and infected these people. Is that they went from being about this to that. And it is a, it is a pretty amazing thing when you see this happen in somebody else, huh? I think we've all known those people that, that we, we looked at and said, this person can never be saved. And then you see God at some point get a hold of them and save them. And, and there's someone that you've never, ever thought they would be. And it's not because of them. It's, again, it's not because they clean themselves up. It's because God's got the scrub brush. It's because it was real. You know what I mean? It's, it's because the gospel came to them in power. And they've been supernaturally resurrected. Right? I think I, I've seen a lot of cool things in my life, but I, I, I do believe... This is one of the coolest things that we can witness is when a true conversion goes down. Um, even ongoing conversion in believers, people that 
you're growing with and Christ next to you and doing life with and, and seeing those, those constant changes, which we call transformation, right? Um, when you see that, it's just one of the coolest things um, that you can possibly see because I, I think that when you see it, you know that there is no way it is something that those people would consider doing or pursuing left to themselves. Like, there's no way. It's, it's something from outside of them that's caused them to go a different direction. And um, I, I think I've told you guys before, I, I doubt myself often. I'm really good at that. I'm sure none of you do. You know, uh, my prayer half the time is like, Lord, help my unbelief. You know what I mean? Um, because I, I just am an idiot. You know what I mean? Um, and, and the more that I look inside myself and study myself, which is part of my problem, uh, you know, the darker it gets. Uh, like there's no shortage of seeing sin deserving of hell. And sometimes I just sit and I, I question myself and, and think that I'm a fraud and think that I'm just putting things on. You know what I mean? Walking in something that I don't actually own until I do sin. And then the evidence comes out. And what I think of that when it happens and how I hate it when it happens and it goes on in me and it goes on in my life. How I want nothing more than to be rid of that sin in my life. I want to be holy. I want to be like my Savior. Where in the world does that come from? Not me. It comes from Him. And so um, I get to feel good about myself again when I, when I uh, like, like, there's, like there's actually something going on when I see that. And it, it is. It's a, it's a heavy evidence. Um, that the Spirit's working in us, you know, that Jesus is doing his work, and he's, um, he's going to come through with it. So, um, again, it's supernatural. There's no other explanation. Um, this is uh, one way that the gospel comes out of us, okay? Finally, finally, another way that the gospel comes out of us or what it affects in us is anticipation, verse 10. Anticipation. He says there, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you have been born again, you know that your home has changed. Your hope has changed. Um, we know that, that our zip code has changed when we've been supernaturally born again. We come to know that this place is not our home. So we start to anticipate to have our eyes firmly fixed on that which is our real home now, right? And evidence of the gospel in us comes out of us with anticipation, the anticipation of seeing Jesus, of seeing our Lord. It's something that is now present in us. It's something that is now real. We cannot wait to see him. I feel selfish sometimes with how much this is true with me, but it's just true. And I feel like I got a verse for it. Um, I just want, I want to see Jesus. I want to see him. I want to be with him. I want him to return. I want him to take care of business. I want to see everything that Renee came up and asked prayer for be done. Finally, be finalized, over with. Um, everything put in its right place. Um, the person who has truly experienced and known the gospel is a person that knows where their home is and where their home is not. 
and where their home is not. And um, this is something that I need to hear every day. So I'm assuming that some of you need to hear this too. This is important. I am fully convinced that so much of the present hardship and frustration and depression and lack of joy that we can experience as Christians is directly due to our attempts to make this place our home. Directly due to us wanting this too much to be our home. When things go wrong, when plans go sideways, when society gets weirder and wickeder, uh, which it's doing both, uh, the only reason it affects me as negatively, as heavily as it does, is usually due to me trying so hard or wanting so bad to make this place my home. Still. Still trying to make a bed here. And it ain't my home. And that's why I'm never satisfied. I'm never excited about what's going on. Is because it's not. I'm never comfortable. Praise God for that too. Though I try to be. The reason I'm affected so much when things go wrong go wrong is directly due to my lack of anticipation for who and what is coming. Do you know who and what is coming? Oh man. This isn't it. I'm just going to remind you as I remind me this morning. This place is not it for us. This place is not it. It cannot be. We have been saved from it. We have been saved out of it. So what in the world are we doing trying to crawl back into it? It's not ours. The Bible says that we are aliens. It says that we are sojourners. It says that we are strangers. It says that you and I are visitors. If the, if the world was a monopoly board, we should be visiting that square Often, we should be sitting on just visiting, okay? Every day we need to know that. We are just visiting. This is not our home. We've been delivered, liberated out of the brokenness of what this is, and he's going to come and he's going to create it anew. And we're going to get to enjoy that for eternity. All the stuff that we hate and we pray to see gone, which we do want gone, right, will be gone someday. The anticipation that we have matters because for some of us, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be the greatest day ever. But for a lot of people, it's going to be the worst day ever because he's going to open up a can on that stuff and on the people that love that stuff. That's why the gospel matters so much. That's why we need to be a movement of the gospel is because there's people right now, walking around out there who have no idea the terror of that day. They have no idea what they're in for. You and I anticipate it and we say, Lord, Maranatha, like, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly, right? And at the same time, when you look at this, that he's bringing a wrath. He's not just collecting that which is his and restoring. He's also setting the record straight with those who aren't. And it should cause us to take the gospel to anybody who will hear and let the Spirit of God do His work. Let Him do His work. Again, we are the means in which God has chosen to use to bring salvation to the world. How are you doing with it? How are you doing with it? And so we have an anticipation. I mean, this is the beauty of it for you and I and all those who are found in Jesus Christ is that when He comes and He shows His face and I stand before Him, I'm all paid up. My accounts are settled. 
I'm not going to have to dig into my pockets and try to reach for something that I don't have. I will be welcomed because my accounts are settled. But there are people out there whose accounts are not. Right? So we anticipate that day, but the anticipation of that day that it's coming and the twofold nature of it should propel us. It should fuel us to go out and to share with others that which has been shared and enjoyed by us, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how the gospel works. The gospel comes to us. It works in us. comes out of us. It comes out of us. Okay? And so every time before the plane leaves the ground, we're serious about our safety instructions. <laughs> right? Whenever we have the opportunity, we're serious about sharing our safety instructions. We're, we're serious about doing it well. There's an urgency. Right? Because the plane is going to go down. This plane's going down. The statistics on plane crashes versus what's going to happen to it, like, they're different. Um, and, and, so, and so we need to be about the business of God. We, let me rephrase We get to be about the business of God. And we get to do it with confidence because it's a supernatural work that he is going to do. He's going to do it. Amen? Lord God, thank you so much for reminding us of things that we so often need to be reminded of. Thank you for um, preserving... Um, um, a, a picture, Lord, of, a, of an early church not even a year old out of conversion um, and, and getting to, to still 2,000 years later be encouraged by these brothers and sisters, um, to be encouraged by your gospel, um, to be built back up and strengthened in a confidence of who you are, what you've done, and what you're going to continue to do. We thank you that the gates of hell are not going to disrupt or in any way prevail over your building of the church and the kingdom. And so, and so again, we thank you that we can have absolute confidence as we open our mouths and we proclaim the truth. I pray, Lord, that we would also be more mindful every day, God desiring more and more to have our lives line up with our mouths that we would both live and speak the gospel to your glory. We thank you for uh, that we get to come together. We thank you for saving um, a room full of people like this. I know we all come from different backgrounds and whatnot, but one thing we all have in common is that we were um, desperate sinners and, um, and that you um, came to us. And so help us, God, to go to others. And we ask it in your name. Amen.